Please would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 143, to Psalm 143. Uh, We finished our series in 2 Samuel last week, but we're going to kind of end it off by looking at a Psalm of David uh, this morning. Uh, So Psalm 143, almost half of the Psalms, I think, are written by David, and and this is one of them that uh, I would like to, to consider today as we bring our time with uh, focused on David in 2 Samuel to an end. So let's read together Psalm uh, 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. You will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. This is God's word. Uh, Let's just come to the Lord again briefly uh, and ask him to bless our time together. Father, as we just come to your word now, we want to thank you uh, that you are a God who has recorded for us all that we need for life and godliness in your word, which leads to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him we have all the fullness, as we have already considered this morning in Colossians and in our songs, we have all the fullness of God dwelling bodily. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can come to you and ask that you would help us Uh, to hear the words of David in this psalm. And as David's greatest son, to whom all of Scripture points, uh, won't you encourage us and help us as your people to become a people who thirst after God. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned last week, we ended our series in 2 Samuel, and and it was a series which lifted the veil uh, on David's weaknesses uh, and failures as a husband, as a father, uh, particularly as a king of Israel. It was a series which showed me, and I hope showed you, David's great need for ongoing forgiveness and ongoing grace of God in his life, and in which numerous ways both positively and through his weaknesses and failings, it pointed us ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the anointed one of God, the king of kings who would reign on David's throne forever. And so we finished 2 Samuel last week. Next weekend, um, 
As elders, we will be away for our annual elders retreat weekend, and we would really value your prayers for us as we seek to know God's leading and guiding for us spiritually as elders, um, and our desire to be faithful to God in being his under shepherds of the church here at Honey Ridge. So next week, we are thankful to God to have Pastor Julian Burke visiting us from the USA. Uh, Julian comes from Five Stones Fellowship in Cleveland, Tennessee, uh, and this is a church which has been faithful uh, over the years as a ministry partner uh, and key financial supporter of Cosmo City Baptist Church. And so it's wonderful to be able to have Julian here uh, at this occasion, and he'll be bringing us God's word next weekend. He's actually out at the moment with a team of young people from his church in the States for a, a three-week missions trip, and so please be praying for Julian as well as he uh, prepares to bring us God's Word next week. But for today, I want us to, to, in a sense, bring our series to Samuel to a close by looking to learn from David's attitude and approach to prayer. Uh, although we have seen something uh, along the way of David being a man after God's own heart, we've also seen a man uh, who made many mistakes in his walk with the Lord. We've seen a man who in many respects went through the ups and the downs that you and I go through every day of life. And yet through those many and varied experiences, we've seen how the Holy Spirit was used in David's life, not only to instruct and to encourage David and to warn David, but through David to be an encouragement and an instruction and sometimes a warning to us in our own situations. So I want to start this morning by quoting to you something which Charles Spurgeon uh, said about David when he was preaching on Psalm 143 back in December uh, 1876. This is what Spurgeon said. What a great mercy it is for us that David had not a smooth path and an easy life. We should have lost much valuable instruction if he had been able to hold the even tenor of his way continually. Whereas now we are great gainers by his trials and sufferings. In reading the Psalms of David, you will often find a verse which just suits your own case. It is hardly possible for you to be placed in any position without discovering that the son of Jesse has been there before you. I cannot in all respects liken him to the Lord Jesus Christ who was in all points tempted as we are, but yet to a large extent it was so with David as well as with great David's greatest son. He seems to have been not merely one man but all mankind's epitome and to have known almost all human temptations, human sins, human joys, having been led sometimes by the Spirit and sometimes, alas, by his own frailty and foolishness into all sorts of strange places in order that he might become an instructor to us. So it's wonderful to be able to read the Psalms, and I hope you will go back to the Psalms with fresh eyes now that we've studied the life of David and allow the ups and the downs of his life to be an instruction to you. But there's another practical benefit to us having studied the life of David, and it's not so much 
simply what we can learn from David for ourselves, but also so that God can teach us things in order that we might encourage and help others along the way of their so often confusing lives. Spurgeon goes on and he says, you've probably heard this remark a great many times, but did it ever strike you that very much the same may be said concerning your own experience? When you are wondering why you are so strangely tried and why your experience is so often remarkable or unremarkable, may it not be that the reason does not lie in yourself so much as in the others to whom God means to make you useful. You are being led along a rough road and being tried and instructed in order that you may be the means of helping others whom you will find in the same dark places of the earth. You are being trained as a hardy mountaineer in order that when the Lord's sheep are lost on wild craggy places, you may know how to climb up after them and bring them down to a place of safety. You are being taught how to find your way through the fen country of despondency and despair in order that when the pilgrims to the celestial city lose their way and get stuck in the marshy places of fear and doubt, you may know how to bring them out again and set their feet upon the rock and establish their journeys once more. And so as we come to this psalm, let us come with our eyes fixed on David's God, not only to instruct and encourage and strengthen us in perhaps the strange places which God's providence may have led you uh, in this past week or month or year, so that you may find great help for yourself today, but also so that we might become to others in their trials and their sufferings the encouragement and the help which I trust we will get from David today. Now, as we come to the psalm, we aren't sure exactly of when the psalm was written, uh, but we do know that it was during one of the seasons in David's life when he was being pursued. Uh, he was on the run, it seems, and facing the real prospect of, of death at the hand of one of his enemies. Uh, could have been early in his life when he was running from King Saul. Perhaps it was much later in life when he was being pursued by his own son Absalom. We, we don't know. But perhaps not knowing the details is a good thing uh, because to a lesser or a greater degree, we can all identify in some way with what David is going through in the psalm. And so in the first place, I want us to see David's heart in prayer, verse one and two. Now, this psalm, Unlike some of the other psalms which tell us that they're meant to be sung, this psalm is, is not one of David's hymns of praise. This is not meant to be sung in the corporate worship of God. This is a personal, private prayer from the heart of David in a time of real personal need. And so it is important to see the heart of David as he, in a sense, in the quietness of his own room, approaches God in prayer. Verse one, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Now what we see right from the outset is the way in which David approaches God in prayer. He recognizes who God is, 
and he recognizes who he is in relation to God, and he comes in deep humility before the throne of God's grace. Although we will see later on something of David's urgency and boldness before God uh, in the psalm, right from the beginning he comes to God in a spirit of humble confession and submission to God. David's God is the God of faithfulness. He's the God of righteousness. He is the Lord, Yahweh. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And David recognizes that not one human being, least of all himself, has any rightful claim to stand before God. He cannot make demands on this God. His only entitlement is judgment. But he along with all men is sinful and there is no one living who is righteous before God. And so right from the beginning of his prayer, he pleads to God for mercy. How important it is to start our praying as David does, in a right acknowledgement of who God is and our need to confess our sins before him so that we can plead for mercy. Notice too that what David presents to God in the psalm is never to presume on the grace of God, but he acknowledges here in verse one that what he needs is mercy. We've looked at this not too long ago. Mercy is God not treating us as our sins deserve. David needs that. He wants God to not treat him as his sins deserve, not judge him in righteousness, not because of who David is. He's a sinner but because of who God is. His prayer starts by acknowledging God, his character as a God who is faithful and a God who is righteous. And this immediately removes any presumption on David's part to think that he knows better than God and that God's dealings with him in his very difficult circumstances are somehow mistaken or unfair. No, God is indeed a faithful God, a God who will never leave us nor forsake us, and he is a God who is perfectly righteous in all his ways. So we see that David comes with his humble heart to God in prayer and he casts himself on the mercy of God to act in accordance with God's character of faithfulness and righteousness. Then in the second place, we see David's reasons for praying in verse three and four. The next two verses show something of the intense trial and the suffering which David was going through. He may have been the king, the Lord's anointed. He may have been the most powerful man in Israel, and yet we know David was weak. He was needy. He faced opposition from within and from without. And we have to all confront these same things in our lives. Look at verse three, he says, for the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. David's struggle here was real. It was far more than simply, and I don't wanna minimize this, but it was far more than simply a physical threat which he faced on his life. He acknowledges that his enemy was after his soul. 
seems from these verses that his enemy was gaining the upper hand in the struggle. Now this could be referring to David literally being forced to hide in a cave of darkness when he was fleeing from Saul back in 1 Samuel. It could refer as well though to a kind of metaphorical cave of darkness which we are often forced into spiritually or emotionally when it, it feels like we've been trapped, trapped in a coffin of, of doubt and grief and despair. There's no light Either way, David's experience was real. Ultimately, all our enemies are functioning under the great enemy of our souls. The devil is not interested in making you poor or sick or unemployed. He's after your soul. And some people, he's after their soul through negative circumstances. Other times, he's after your soul by blessing you with everything you think you want. But he's after your soul. David's experience was real. I think if you've ever faced something similar, either physically or emotionally and spiritually in your life, you will know just how real the anguish of your soul is at those times. Perhaps you even despair of life itself. Notice 2 in verse 4. This is the great King David, the, the mighty warrior who killed Goliath as a young boy, who led God's people in and out of great battle and victory against their enemies, this is the same David who's now at a point where he wants to give up. Verse four, therefore my spirit faints within me and my heart within me is appalled. David here was losing the will to keep on going. You know what it means when your body faints. When your body faints, you, you black out, you lose all strength, you lose all consciousness, and you collapse to the floor. Well, this is how David feels in his spirit. He is about to, to black out spiritually, to, to faint, to give up the fight. He says his circumstances, the pressures of his enemies, they've driven him to a place where his heart is, is appalled. The word means shocked, astounded, confused, deer in a headlamp. Can't understand what's going on. He couldn't make sense of it all. It, it was getting too much for him. His spirit was growing weak. And verse four says he's about to throw in the towel. Perhaps you've known times like that in the past. Perhaps you're going through something similar even now in your own walk with God. Well, then in the third place, I want us to see David's hope in prayer in verse five and six. Let me ask you this before we consider these verses. Why do we pray? Let me ask you personally, why do you pray? Because you were taught that as a child? Because that's the Christian thing to do? Strip all of that away. Why do you pray? We pray because God is God and we are not. This is at the heart of all praying. It's, it's what we've seen in verse one and two. If we were God, if we had the power to do everything that needed to be done, we wouldn't need to pray. But no, we come to God because he is sovereign. 
We pray because He is in control of all things, because He is faithful and righteous to do what we cannot do for ourselves. The self-sufficient person does not pray. And so we see that as David faces the extreme depths of his trials and is emotionally, he's in the grave already, it's been dug. He's about to give up the fight. What does he do? He turns to the God of all hope in verse five. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. Now, I just wanna bring up a diagram here. Structurally, don't worry about reading the words. It's just the breakdown of the psalm. Structurally, verse five and six are the very center of the psalm. Psalm 143 is known as what is a chiastic structure, which means that different ideas are repeated uh, at the ends and then towards the middle, and then we get to what is the central theme in the psalm. So you can see verse one and two uh, is A at the top, it's paralleled with verses 10 to 12 at the bottom. Verse three and four is B, and that's paralleled with verses seven to nine. And verse five and six are are in the middle as the, the central focus. This is the arrowhead. This is the point of the whole psalm. And this is significant because it reveals to us the true power of prayer. The power of prayer is not to focus on our circumstances and how we are going to solve our problems. As real as they may be, the power of prayer, our hope in prayer, is to focus on God. So despite the reality of David's circumstances, either physically or emotionally, that which locked him up in this cave of darkness, nevertheless we see that David looks away from himself, he looks away from his needs, and he looks to God. He says, I remember the days of old, perhaps referring to his own life, when when God had once delivered him as a young shepherd boy from from the lion and the bear. Perhaps he's thinking back to, to the young man, the young prince David who fought the giant Goliath, or or the young man who was delivered from crazy King Saul. But I think when he uses that phrase, remembering the days of old, he's going right back in the history of the Old Testament to the times when God had again and again and again proved himself to be faithful to his people Israel. But I think even more than that, David ponders on all the works of God, he says, which must surely be a reference to creation and God's provident care over all that he has made. I just love the fact that what gives David hope in the midst of a very real, personal, immediate crisis is to spend time not thinking about the Big Bang, but to be thinking about God's work of creation. Let me just give you some Psalms there that would have come to David's mind. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands I sing for joy. How simple and and how practical are David's words here. 
He does not pretend that his struggles are not real. He's just acknowledged how real they are in verse three and four. But although he acknowledges them, he doesn't dwell on them. He presents them to God and then he dwells on the greatness of God. He remembers all that God has done in history for Israel, his own personal history, all that God has made, and he meditates and he, he ponders on the mighty works of God. One of the problems when we go through times like David is we lose perspective. Do you perhaps need fresh perspective on the struggle or the trial that you are going through? Do you need hope in your praying? When you pray, does it kind of just feel like your, your prayers hit the ceiling and, and just fall back to the floor? And can I encourage you to dwell on the greatness of God? Lift your eyes from your circumstances and take delight in the God who has made all things and who sovereignly cares for all that he has made. Now look at what David does next in verse six. His hope is, is not found in any mystical experience of creation. He's not trying to tap into the power of nature as we are told by Eastern New Age philosophy. No, David's hope is found in God himself. Verse six, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Now this must certainly be the ultimate litmus test of true prayer. Do you pray to get things from God? Do you pray to get God to do things for you? Or do you pray in order to get God? Follow the sequence in the Psalm. David has acknowledged that he's a sinner who is in need of the mercies of God. He's presented his real, desperate situation to God. He's pondered the greatness of God's work in creation and history. And now he stretches out his hands to God and his soul thirsts for God. Like a dry, cracked up desert drinks in the water. This is surely the great leveler in prayer. For this one verse reveals the, the heart of true prayer, the, the heart of prayer that God is pleased to answer every single time. Why do I say that? Well, in Luke 11, just after Jesus had taught his disciples how to pray, Jesus tells them a parable about praying and about persistence in praying. And he ends that parable off in Luke 11, verse 11. And he says this, what father among you, if his son asks him for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See what Jesus is saying? What we really need, way more than a better government, way more than a stable economy, way more than this or that which you think you need right now, more than all the gifts which God can give you, we need God. We need His Holy Spirit. 
And if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will God, our heavenly Father, what does it say? Not give himself to those who ask. When last have you pleaded with God to give you himself? To give you more of himself? To give his Holy Spirit to you in abundance? I don't miss this. David's enemies are still there. They're still real. His suffering hasn't gone away. His weakness is still real. But his God is more real. His God is all sufficient. His grace is abundant. His presence is satisfying. And so the turning point for David is not the change in his circumstances, but the satisfying presence of God in the midst of his circumstances. This is surely what Paul is speaking of in Philippians 4, where he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Yes, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, our hope in prayer is not primarily a hope in changed circumstances, but it's a hope in the promised presence of God in those circumstances. Yes, God may graciously sometimes deliver us from our circumstances. He may provide a, uh, provide a way out that we never expected or anticipated. That's a blessing. But sometimes God chooses to keep us in our circumstances of trial or suffering for an extended period. Think about Paul in prison in Rome for years. Think about John on the island of Patmos for years until he died. Our hope is not lost in those times because God has promised us himself. His presence in the midst of it all and his peace which quenches and quiets all our anxieties. Although David's hope in prayer is the focus of the psalm, I hope you see that and I hope you, it helps you already to perhaps redefine your own praying. There's still a few more things that I want us to learn but we'll be more brief in the remaining points I want us to also see David's urgency in prayer. And I think this gives us a really a, a much needed balance which is often missing in Christian circles today. Uh, on the one extreme, we have almost a, a total absence of praying in many Christian circles, both privately and corporately. It really seems as if people who call themselves Christians hardly ever pray. But then on the other extreme, we have certain groups within Christianity who pray, who pray a lot, who pray out loud, who pray all at the same time, and whose prayer sounds more like a dictator instructing a subordinate to do his bidding, where God is literally commanded, usually in Jesus' name, to do what the person wants to have done. I want you to see that David shows us a very different pattern to those extremes. Prayer from a heart which recognizes that on the one hand he has no rightful claims on God whatsoever, no claims to God's blessing or intervention or breakthrough. Everything we receive from God is because of his mercy towards us. But then with 
balanced with that, we see David is fully aware of the God whom he is approaching in prayer. He's the God who created heaven and earth, and he is the God who can indeed do all things. And so in these verses, we see David comes to God with a wonderful balance, not to make demands on God, but to present God with the real urgency of his needs. Now these verses here in verses seven to nine are paralleled in the structure with verses three and four. We've already seen that's where David presents his desperate need to God. Now we find something of the urgency in his praying. Look at verse seven. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. These verses are wonderfully instructive. They've provided me with great encouragement as I've seen something of the right urgency with which David approaches God in prayer, and yet without being demanding or presumptuous. David's urgency in bringing his, his needs before God is driven by what? He recognizes his own weakness. He says, my spirit is failing me. I'm on my way out. I cannot carry on in my own strength. I need you, God, to intervene quickly. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, no trial has overtaken you that is not faced by others, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond that which you are able to bear, but with the trial, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. Can I say that probably 99 out of 100 times God's way out in times of great testing and trial will usually be discerned through prayer? David's deep desire is that he will not fail the test. He does not want to go down to the pit. He does not want to fall away from God. He recognizes that he cannot do it in his own strength. So he urgently pleads with God to intervene. Now can I just say that David's urgency is not to be confused with impatience, wanting God to do what David wants in David's timing. No, his urgency is a recognition that he is weak and he cannot do this unless God intervenes. And then in verses eight and nine, there are three wonderful couplets. Let me just bring them up. Each making a clear request of God, but each request is backed up by David's hope in God. He says, let me hear in the morning, in the morning of your steadfast love. There's urgency. For in you I trust. Make me know the way that I should go. When I get up tomorrow morning and I have to face the day, Lord, help me to know what to do. For in you, or to you, I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord, for to you I have fled for refuge. You see, the basis for each of his urgent petitions is not presumption, it's not impatience, it's not demand. It's David's request based on the character of God and his unwavering hope in God. Remember in verse six we saw that David's ultimate goal in prayer was not to get things from God, but to get God. And here we see how his desire for God, this thirsting after the presence of God, is the basis for all his praying. 
I trust in you. I lift up my soul to you. I fled to you for refuge and strength. I just love the, the down-to-earth practical nature of these requests. And I think this is where Spurgeon is so right. Dave, no matter what you and I face, there's a good chance David's been there before you. Lord, in the first one, I'm about to collapse under the, the pressure of my enemies, whether they're physical or spiritual. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, your, your chesed. Lord, I know you love me with covenant love. I know you're watching over me, but the waiting to see you act, it's wearing me down. Lord, please answer me soon, for in you I trust. Lord, help me to make right decisions. Look at the mess that I've made on my own. Give me the wisdom I need to choose the right path. Make me know the way that I should go because I have lifted up my soul to you. Lord, I'm not asking you to bless my ways. I'm looking to you with all of my soul to show me your way. And then Lord, please deliver me from my enemies. They are real, they are mean, their arrows hurt, their words hurt more. The betrayal of those closest to me hurts the most, so deliver me, Lord, because I've run to you for refuge. I want you to see there is nothing wrong with urgency in our praying. Oh, that God would give us more urgency in our praying, to be persistent in our praying, as long as the basis for that urgency and persistence is rooted in our unwavering trust in God. And then quickly in the fifth place, I want us to see David's humility in prayer. And now this verse 10 is paralleled with verse one and two where we saw David's heart in prayer and here we see uh, that he's praying, although urgent, it's not presumptuous or demanding, it comes from a heart of deep humility. Again, let's not forget who's speaking here. This is the anointed king of Israel, the most powerful and honored man of God's Old Testament covenant people and yet look at his heart before God. Teach me to do your will for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Here we see the king with a small K is turning to the king of kings with a capital K. And he recognizes that his deliverance and his future, it's bound up in his obedience to the will of God. The heart of any true prayer, a prayer which God will be pleased to answer is always a prayer which is one of humble submission your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will over my life. So can I say praying is not about bending God's will to ours. It is indeed the exact opposite. It is about bending our will to God's. Verse 10 is extremely personal. It's actually quite vulnerable. He says in verse 10, teach me Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. You see, when verse six is true of you, when your soul thirsts for God like a parched land, 
then you don't come to God with demands. You don't come to God to, to rubber stamp your will. You come to God with an offer of a submissive heart, a submissive will, an obedient heart to do the will of God. David also sees that if he has any hope in obeying God's will, he needs the Holy Spirit. And so he says, let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Notice David does not say, Lord, just, just show me the way. I'm the king, I'll figure out the rest. Lord, just show me which person to marry or which job to take or which business venture to pursue and I'll take it from there. I've got this. Now David's plea to God is to know the will of God by following the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is the true heart of prayer. It's a submission, humble submission to have his way in your life to have his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Perhaps one of the reasons we don't pray enough, or we certainly don't pray like David, is because we still want our will to be done. We still want our will to be the will that we ask God to bless. Because we have not truly submitted our lives to Christ as we ought. And so finally I close with David's confidence in prayer in verse 11 and 12. And these last two verses are really the, the summary of the whole psalm. Uh, they're part of that last section. And they reveal to us where David's confidence lies as he comes to God in the depths of despair. Verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life, and in your righteousness bring my soul out of trouble. In your steadfast love you will cut off my enemies. You will destroy all the adversaries of my soul for I am your servant. David's confidence lies in God doing what God does best, which is to glorify himself in the redemption of his people. Please note in verse 11 what is the most important thing for David. It's the glory of God's name. For your name's sake, do all that I've requested. Now when you and I see this, when you and I delight in God, then we will delight in the glory of God and we will find that our prayers become bolder, not to presume on God to give us the things we want, but bolder to pray the things which will glorify God, which will make his name great, the son of Jesus Christ great in our lives and in our church and in our country and in the world around us. So as I close, I want you to see that David's prayer could not have been, these last verses could not have been more fully and perfectly answered than in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, King David's greater son. Yes, David might have known temporary relief from his enemies and he came out of the cave, but then the next enemy arose and the enemy of his soul continued and still continues, not only after David, but after David's greatest son's offspring. We saw that in Revelation. Satan is after our souls because he hates Jesus. But David's prayer in verse 12, your steadfast love will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the enemies of my soul. 
is ultimately fulfilled only in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to give his life so that ours could be ultimately preserved. He gave up his righteousness so that our souls could be perfectly clothed in his perfection. His steadfast love means that he was cut off in our place and his resurrection means that he will one day return to finally destroy all the enemies of God, Satan himself and death forever. And so there is no more fitting way to end this prayer and for you and I to end all of our praying than with the same response that David has to God that we should have to Jesus, which is to declare as David does, I'm your servant. I'm your servant. Is that really true of you? God, I am your servant. May your name be glorified. May your will be done in my life. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the insights that you have given us into the heart of prayer in a sense through a most unlikely of human beings because we've just spent, Lord, the last year studying the life of David. He, is no, he was no ivory tower theologian and saint. He was a broken man who needed your grace and your forgiveness every day. And so what a comfort this is to us today to learn from David how it is that we can align our hearts to you, to thirst after you, to desire you and your presence and your leading and your guiding more than anything else in this world, to plead for your mercy, to depend upon your character, and to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, not because of anything we've done, but all because of Jesus. For this is surely our most reasonable act of worship. May this be true of us. May this stir in us a greater longing for you and a greater desire to spend more time in God-focused prayer as we seek for you to lead and guide us and to glorify your name in and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.